Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. So I grew up in a non-Christian home. Uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, rules or boundaries in my life. I basically got to watch what I wanted to watch, listen to what I wanted to listen to. Um, I watched sexually explicit movies with my parents as early as I can remember. Um, I saw porn for the first time at seven years old in my bathroom. My dad had a magazine in the bathroom. Uh, good thing he's not here. He'd be really embarrassed that I just said that. But, uh, um, you know, I had no boundaries. I could go where I wanted to go. I could do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I'd go out and play in the mornings in the summer, and I would leave in the morning to go play with my friends. And my mom would lock the door, and I wouldn't be allowed to come back in until dinner time. So I basically would just go out all day, you know, no supervision whatsoever, do whatever I wanted, come home at dinner. And, you know, thinking back, I, I thought she was kind of crazy for doing that, but now that I have two kids under the age of six, sometimes I wonder if, you know, <laughs> locking them out is the sanest thing I could do that day. Um, but, yeah, I grew up in a home where I could do basically whatever I wanted to. And then as a teenager, I became a Christian. And if any of you have become Christians uh, at any time later in life, um, you know that there's a whole new set of rules and restrictions that all of a sudden get put on you, right? I grew up where I had zero restrictions whatsoever. And then all of a sudden I became a Christian and the message that I heard over and over again was, you know, now that God has saved you, your desires are going to change. Your heart's going to change. You're not going to desire to look at porn anymore. You're not going to desire to have sex outside of marriage. You're not going to desire to lie or cheat to get ahead. You're not going to be prideful. You're no longer going to desire to watch certain movies or listen to certain music or wear certain clothes. And if you still desire those things, you have reason to question your salvation. And what do we all do if you went to church camp as a teenager? What do we all do when we came back from church camp, right? We had a church camp high. We threw away all of our CDs. You know, in, in, my, uh, in my time, it was throwing away your Tupac and your Backstreet Boys CDs. Uh, lighting your Sports Illustrated and Teen Vogue magazine on fire because it idolized sports and fashion. Uh, stopped using Napster and LimeWire because that was stealing music, right? <laughs> Which is, Jacob really, really likes that part. Jacob's. And for your younger generation, I don't know what you guys do. I know maybe you delete One Direction from your iTunes or sell your PS4 on Amazon or stop playing Fortnite or something. But I think we can all relate to something like that. But needless to say, you know, I still desired to sin and I was still tempted in all the same ways after I became a Christian. That didn't go away. And of course, thinking about my upbringing, uh, just mine personally, you know, this view of rules and restrictions and freedom was totally upside down. It was jacked up. Then I become a Christian, and all of a sudden I have all these restrictions that I have to live under. And so I just need to learn how to obey God. And the hardest part was learning how to obey God because nobody ever taught me how to obey God. Nobody ever showed me what it really looks like to be discipled and to obey God. So I was just kind of figuring it out on my own. And so I assumed that what I needed to do was do the exact opposite of everything I'd ever done, and I'd be fine. Uh, but as you guys know, if you've tried that, that's tiring. It'll wear you out. It'll make you doubt God. It'll make you be frustrated with God because you're not obeying the way that you think you should. But I think we all, like I said, we struggle in different ways with how to balance being obedient to God on the one hand, trying to earn our salvation. And on the other hand, saying, hey, Jesus has died for my sins, so I'm good. What else can I do? But sometimes we get caught up in, in just making simple decisions. You know, we overanalyze everything. Sometimes two decisions are equally good and right, but we can't see that. We just think that, man, if I do this thing or that thing, I'm going to be disobeying God. He's going to be upset with me. But, you know, sometimes there's not a wrong way to do something. 
We think of, we think of how we spend our money or how we vote or how we, uh, what job we take or who we date or marry. Sometimes we just overthink that whenever God is not wanting us to overthink that. Sometimes we become paralyzed when God wants us to just be obedient, which are two very different things. And sometimes we have a hard time separating those two things. We want the Christian life to be black and white, but the truth is that most of the time it's gray. And most of the time we're just trying to figure out what do I do in this situation? There's some pretty clear things, don't do this, don't do that, that we all basically know, but a lot of the stuff in between is really hard to figure out. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of bookend our Advent series that we just went through on the mothers of Jesus. We went through the lineage of of Jesus, kind of the human uh, story that leads up to Jesus. Uh, And then, of course, on Christmas, uh, Christmas weekend, we talked about the birth of Jesus. Elisha did a great job talking about the birth of Jesus and about Mary. So I just want to continue on from that and not stop and just think all of a sudden, well, now Christmas is over, we can move on to other things. Because Jesus wasn't just born in a manger, he also lived a full human life. And he also did a lot of things on earth in his human life after his birth. So this morning we're just going to talk about how does Jesus fulfill, reinterpret, and ultimately redeem not only his lineage that we talked about, but the lineage of the entire human race. And what does his obedience mean as the sinless man? What does that mean for us as people who still sin and who struggle with temptation? So we're going to be in Matthew 4 and Romans 5 and 6 this morning, but um, I'm going to start in Genesis 3 because what good city church sermon doesn't include Genesis 3 at some point, right? So if you, don't, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, in the back corner of the room there, we have Bibles. They're free. They're our gift to you, so feel free to take one. Uh, but in the meantime, all the scripture will be on the screen. So Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden, from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Verse four, Satan says, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, so here we see a couple of things, right? Adam and Eve are sinless and perfect. The God's image bearers, they are the pinnacles of his creation. And in order to show them what it means to be dependent on him and to obey him, he puts this uh, one simple restriction on them. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan twists God's words, and he convinces Adam and Eve that they're not actually free. He says the line that Satan still says to us all the time, did God really say? And Eve answers rightly at first. She says, yes, God, God said that we can't eat from that tree. But then Satan convinces them that God is holding out on them. And he uses something as simple as a piece of fruit to convince Adam and Eve that disobeying God would mean becoming like God, which means that they would have all the riches, all the power in the universe. Everything would be at their fingertips. And they bought into the lie that disobeying God would mean ultimate freedom. And because of their sin, they were thrown out of the garden and into the wilderness. And their sin would be passed down to their offspring and ultimately to every person person ever born. And our passage today in Matthew 4 paints a very similar scene. We're going to see some connections here. Only this time it's Jesus, the only other man aside from Adam to ever experience a life without sin. And this time Jesus comes from the perfect garden of heaven itself into the wilderness. And he stands toe-to-toe with Satan to undo everything that Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So let's look at Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus told him, Well, it's also written, Do not test the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. So for a little context before we get into Matthew 4, let's talk about how Matthew has described Jesus throughout his gospel so far. Because Matthew is kind of painting a picture for us. He's telling us a lot about who Jesus is in the first couple of chapters. So if you look at Matthew 1, you see a few things. You see Jesus' lineage, right? His human lineage. What, what were the, the people before him that led to his birth? You see that Jesus means God saves. It talks about him being God. Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is God in the flesh, God with us. And conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he had the Holy Spirit and Mary both involved in his birth, God and human. Matthew 2, Jesus is called the King of Israel. That's a human title. That's him. Uh, He's the heir to the throne of David. And then Jesus is threatened with death, right? God can't die, but humans can. Whenever, um, you know, there's there's an order out for his death for all the babies to die. Matthew 3, Jesus is baptized, something that that we do as humans who follow God. Uh, The Father calls him Son, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. You have the Father calling him Son, the Son of God. And you also have the Holy Spirit coming down on him as a human, like he does uh, all of us when we, when we place our faith in Christ. So Matthew's painting a picture for us that the church would later define as the hypostatic union. There's a, there's a $10 word for you there. The hypostatic union, which basically just means two natures united in one person. That Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time. So Matthew is kind of laying this out, and the church reflects on this later and, and says, okay, clearly Matthew and the rest of the Bible is teaching that Jesus is both God and man. And as Christians, we affirm the Trinity, right? There's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three are fully God. They all share in God's authority and God's goodness and God's love and the eternal nature of God. Uh, God the Son was sent by God the Father into the world to save us from our sins, right? We see that in John 1. We see that in John 3.16, which is, by the way, why we don't pray, Jesus, thank you for sending your Son, because Jesus didn't send a Son. Or, Father, thank you for dying on the cross. That's, when we understand the Bible, we understand that the Father sends the Son, the Son is the one who dies on the cross. And the Bible is trying to teach us something about who each of them are, who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. So that's why it's important to, to affirm the Trinity and understand the Trinity. And I could do a whole uh, theology lecture this morning, but I won't. But I do want to give you just a little theology lesson here, because I think it's important to understand who Jesus is. Because if we understand who Jesus is, we understand the Bible story a little bit more. Jesus is fully God and fully man. If he were 50% God and 50% man, he wouldn't be able to forgive our sins because that's something only God can do. And he wouldn't be able to live the perfect life that Adam failed to live because he wouldn't be truly a man. He would basically just be a God-human half-breed who'd be effectively useless to save us. But because he's fully God, he can forgive us the way God can. And because he's fully man, he can live a true human life that is full of temptations and trials and ultimately death on a cross. So Athanasius, the great church father, said this all the way back in 318 AD, a long time ago. 
His body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that he was both in it and in all things, and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, and this is the wonder, as a man, he was living a human life, and as word, or as God's word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as son, he was in constant union with the Father. Not even his birth from a virgin, therefore, changed him in any way, nor was he defiled by being in the body. Rather, Jesus sanctified the body by being in it. So in other words, Jesus did not become less than God when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He didn't lose something by becoming a man, by putting on flesh. Instead, precisely, Athanasius says, because he's God in the flesh, he became a true human. He made humanity clean and whole the way that it was supposed to be. And he came to live a life to undo all the things that Adam did in the garden when he ruined our humanity and hurt our humanity. And this is also why Jesus lived a full human life. That's why he wasn't just born in a manger and then died the next day. And I think sometimes we, we like to think that Jesus secured our salvation on the cross and then he kind of lived this good moral life to give us a good example of how to live. But we forget that the Bible teaches that Jesus actually had to live a full human life and be obedient to God, something that he never was before. He had to become obedient to God so that he could live a full human life so that he could systematically dismantle everything that Adam had done and ultimately undo Adam's curse. Okay, so let's go back to Matthew 4, and we'll kind of look at where his obedience begins. So remember Matthew 3, he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down on him, and then immediately in Matthew 4, he goes out of the water and right into the wilderness. It says that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, or you could translate it, the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And it's not a coincidence that staring Satan in the face is Jesus' first order of business. Right? The first thing he does when he starts his ministry is he goes toe-to-toe with Satan. Because the fall of mankind happened in the face of Satan, and now the redemption of mankind would happen in the same place. So like I said, this is very similar to Genesis 3. And so we'll kind of look at how, how Jesus is undoing the things Adam did here in this scene. Okay, so let's compare Adam and Eve's temptations with Jesus's. So first, Satan begins by pointing out a food problem, that there's this provision that they're lacking, right? Look at verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And then Jesus answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan first approaches Jesus here, and he points out that Jesus is hungry. Right? The Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness, left him hungry without anything to eat. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And so Satan asks him, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? You're the son of God. You can literally do anything. Why are you starving yourself? Why are you putting yourself through this unnecessary thing? And in a way, Satan is repeating exactly what he said to Adam and Eve. He's questioning why God puts them in the place and then basically gives them this unnecessary dietary restriction, or so it seems. But Adam and Eve failed to realize that not eating the fruit from one tree was an act of obedience. But Jesus knew that fasting and not eating was part of being obedient was part of doing what God had called him to do. So Jesus responds by quoting De- uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, man must not live on bread alone, but, must, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus passes the first temptation that Adam and Eve failed, provision, the temptation of provision. Second, Satan tempts Jesus to test God's protection. Look at verses five to seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, what's also written, do not test the Lord your God. 
So here, Satan ups his game. He's like, all right, we want to start quoting God's word. I got a scripture for you, right? And so he quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, remember Psalm 91? God will protect you if you jump. But Jesus knew that Satan was twisting God's words, just like he did in the garden. And so he corrects him with another scripture, Deuteronomy 6, do not test the Lord your God. In other words, I'm, yes, he would protect me if I jumped off, but you're basically telling me to test God and test God's protection of me. So in the garden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve by telling them that God wasn't really protecting them. God told Adam and Eve that eating of the tree would open their eyes to evil. So he was protecting him from that. He didn't want them to know what evil was. He was protecting them from that. And so Satan told them, test God, go ahead and eat. God just doesn't want you to be like him. That's the problem here. So Adam and Eve thought that they needed proof that God was looking out for them. So they went ahead and ate. They thought, okay, we'll test it. We'll see if, if this is true. But Jesus knew that God's protection was on him, and so he didn't need to prove anything by jumping off of a building. So instead, he repeats God's words to Satan and quotes scripture back to him, which, by the way, is a great uh, method if you're ever doubting, if you ever feel tempted. Quoting God's scripture is a good way to get Satan to go away. So Jesus passes the second temptation that Adam and Eve failed, protection, doubting God's protection. Third and finally, Satan tempts Jesus with power. Look at verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. By the way, this shows how desperate Satan is, right? Like he really thinks the eternal son of God is going to bow down to him. But um, Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So this looks eerily uh, similar to the final temptation that Satan had placed in front of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, Satan tells them that if they eat of the fruit, they'll become like God. They'll be all-powerful. They'll rule the universe. They'll be just like God. But what they didn't realize is that being made in God's image meant that they were more like God than they even realized. And to become sinful is to become less like God, not more like God. But Jesus responds the right way. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus knew that true humanity, real image-bearing, is rooted in dependence on and worship of God. And to give in to Satan's temptation was to forfeit everything that the Father had sent him to do. So Jesus passes the final temptation that Adam and Eve failed, the temptation of power. And isn't that what we all, at the end of the day, struggle with? Isn't that the root of all of our doubt and all of our sin? We doubt that God's going to provide for us. We doubt that God's going to protect us. And we want power and control, and we don't think that God has enough power and control to handle the situations in our lives. Adam and Eve fell into that, and Jesus went out into the wilderness and took all of that on himself for us, because he knew obviously, that these were the things that we would always struggle with. These would be the roots of our sins and our temptations. So Adam and Eve failed to trust God with these things, with provision, protection, and power, but Jesus didn't. And with that, we have verse 11. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. So Satan slithers away like the snake that he is, and Jesus, the fully human, second Adam, perfectly obedient to God, sets in motion God's plan of redemption. Scripture says in Hebrews that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And we see it right here. He's tempted in the same ways Adam and Eve are, the same ways that we are, yet he didn't sin. And throughout the rest of the Gospels, throughout the rest of his life, we see over and over again that Jesus is undoing sin and death. He's undoing all of the curse of Adam. He's undoing everything that Satan has tried to build. He's forgiving sins. He's healing the sick. He's raising people from the dead. And ultimately, he dies the death that we deserve on the cross and resurrects three days later to give us new life, the eternal life that we squander in our sin every day. Okay, now go with me to Romans 5 to 6. Romans 5 to 6. We're going to look at how Paul applies this how he applies what Jesus has done, how he applies Jesus' obedience to our own. 
And what I hope basically is that we will be challenged and encouraged uh, by this and that we will find some comfort in how obeying God actually works out in our own lives. So I'm going to read all of Romans 5 and 6 because I think, you know, we need, to, we need to read all of this to get the full effect of what Paul is saying, but we're going to just um, summarize a, a few key points. But we're going to read all of Romans 5 to 6. So settle in, get your coffee. We're going to read all of it. So Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and, through, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will also certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may be no longer enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things that you're now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you've been set free from sin, you've become enslaved to God. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a lot better sermon than I would have planned anyway. So, uh, Okay, so we're going to look at two key points here. I just want to summarize two key points. Number one, your salvation rests on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that alone. Look at Romans 5, 8, and 5, 19. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And for just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Hopefully you've heard this enough times in this church, but you might need to hear it again. God is not waiting for you to clean yourself up before he saves you. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I have to remind myself of that and be reminded of that. And I think a lot of times I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pastor. I lead a community group. Uh, I have multiple seminary degrees. My day job is getting the Bible translation to people all over the world. Uh, I'm faithful to my wife. I provide for my kids. And I generally do the right thing. But the truth is that I could be all of those things and still be lost. I could be faithful to my wife. I could work on a Bible translation and still not believe that Christ died for my sins and not believe that Christ is obeyed on my behalf. But it doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are or how good or how bad you think you are. You need the gospel today. You need the good news that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And by the way, this passage is always going to apply to you because you will always still be a sinner in this life. It's not like this applied to you one time when you placed your faith in Christ or when you prayed a prayer. This will always be applicable to you because you will always struggle with sin and temptation. We are always still sinners. We're born into it, but we're not powerless against it. Because point two, your salvation enables you to fight sin and obey God. What Christ has done for you, his obedience for you, him sending the Holy Spirit to you is what enables you to fight sin and obey God. So it's not hopeless. All hope is not lost. Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that we will fight sin and affliction, but fighting it gives us hope. Verse 5, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you in order to keep pushing you forward, even when it feels hard. And you can have hope that you're not okay today, And you may not be okay tomorrow, but you don't have to stay there. You don't have to sit in your sin. And this is why we talk about, I talked earlier about the Trinity. 
Because the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that is God living inside of you. If God lives inside of you, you have everything you need to fight sin and temptation. You have everything you need. Paul says later in 6, 17, 18, but thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. He says you used to be slaves to sin. If you are a Christian, you used to be a slave to sin. If you have placed your life on the truth that Jesus has already obeyed, died, and resurrected on your behalf, then you are no longer a slave. You can no longer say, well, I'm just a sinner. I can't help it. What do you want me to do? This is how I am. That's, that's just not trusting God that he has given you the Holy Spirit, not trusting that God has given you the power to fight sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there is no sin no, or no temptation that you face that God will not provide a way out for. The primary reason, the way that he gives you that way out is through the Holy Spirit. It's through Christ sending the Holy Spirit to you. So you're now a slave to righteousness. And simply put, being a slave to righteousness means that you make God your master, that your desires and interests and priorities are now in line with God's. But this doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect, and this doesn't mean that you're always going to want to obey God. And that's the key. Yes, you're a slave to righteousness. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but you're not perfect yet. And so sometimes you're not going to want to do the right thing. Sometimes you're not going to want to follow God. And sometimes you're going to want to indulge in your sin. And I've heard people say before, well, you know, I haven't read my Bible in a few years because I I never really want to. And I'd be a hypocrite if I read my Bible when my heart wasn't in it, right? Well, my heart's not in the right place. What do you want me to do? It's sad and funny at the same time, but let me just clarify something for you, okay? It's not hypocritical to do the right thing, okay? To restrict yourself from sin, to put forth an effort to be godly, that is not hypocritical, and doing things that are right and good, even when you don't want to, does not make you a hypocrite. Okay, this, and by the way, this type of, of thinking doesn't work anywhere else in life. Think about this for a second. Oh, baby, you know, I know I slept with that other woman, but I really wanted to. And I didn't want to be a hypocrite, so I went ahead and had an affair. Is that cool? I mean, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite or anything. Do you think that would actually work in any... No, thank you, Shepard. Okay, she- Shepard gets it. But that doesn't work in any area of life. Any sin that you indulge in, yes, you want to sin. Yes, you want to give into it. But you can't just say, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm just going to sin all the time. Paul says, because you have grace, it doesn't mean that sin abounds, right? It doesn't work in any other way. It's not hypocritical to do the right thing. It's never wrong to do the right thing. What's hypocritical is pretending like you're not sinful and then holding that over other people and judging other people and condemning them for things that you act like you've already got figured out. If you look in Matthew, especially in Matthew like 23, Jesus has this whole thing where he just goes after the Pharisees hard. And he calls them hypocrites every time. And Jesus scolded the Pharisees for pretending to be something that they're not and for teaching that you can earn your salvation through mere good works. He never scolds the Pharisees, by the way, for obeying the law or for teaching the law. He only goes after them when they use the law as a weapon to condemn people instead of a tool to make them righteous. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. The law is not the problem. Restrictions and rules are not the problem. The problem is that we're trying to use those things to either save ourselves or to condemn others. That's hypocritical. And trying to buy grace with your works, that's the real problem. That's what the Pharisees were teaching. Pastor Ray Ortland said it this way. The tension is not ultimately grace versus law, but grace versus the flesh. In other words, grace doesn't exclude our obedience. It excludes the self-exalting buying power of our moralism. 
And we all know that we can do good deeds and good works at church and at work and everywhere else, and that'll buy us a lot of capital. That'll get us a lot of things that we want. It'll get us ahead in life. But that's not what grace is about. Grace is not about getting you ahead in life. But God is not opposed to effort. God is opposed to earning. And there's a big difference. God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. He doesn't want you to try to buy your salvation with good deeds. But he does expect you to take up your cross and follow Jesus. We all know that if we've tried for two seconds, the Christian life is hard. It takes work, dedication, discipline, sacrifice. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not like, run like one who aim, runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after the preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So you might be thinking, Paul, dude, are you telling me I need to work really hard to be saved? I thought we just talked about this. I thought we just said that we didn't have to earn our salvation. Now you're telling me to bring my body under strict control to beat everybody else in the race? Well, our passage today says that Christ has already earned our salvation. Paul says that a billion times. So I don't think that's right. I think what Paul is saying here, using this uh, phrase, is kind of tying it to being a slave to righteousness. Part of the proof that God has changed your heart is that you're willing to turn away from the lingering effects of sin and turn toward godliness. That your effort to do things that you don't feel like you're doing is not hypocritical, but actual proof that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That you really are a slave to righteousness. So yes, you should pray that God would continue to make your heart more joyful in obedience. Yes, you should pray that your heart desires the things of God more than the things of Satan. But you should also be grateful that because of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to read your Bible and pray and be faithful in your relationships and be honest and be humble even when you don't feel like it. Because like I said, it's never wrong to do the right thing. It's never, ever, ever, ever wrong to choose godliness over sinfulness. And that's why I think we get so caught up in our basic decisions of life. We just think, am I going to fall into sin? Is this the time? Is this the one that God won't forgive? Is this the time where God is trying to give me this clear path and I'm not listening to him? You should be praying and hoping that God gives you the right desires and that God makes things clear to you about where you should work or who you should marry or whatever those ideas are that you're struggling with. But you should also know that wherever you end up is where God has you. Okay? Now, it's not an excuse to sin to say, well, I ended up at this, uh, you know, doing acid at this rave, but, you know, it's where God wants me to be. Yeah. That's, not, that's not what we're going for here, okay? I can see somebody going home and going, Brandon said, where God wants me. Uh, but it does mean that God will work all things out for you, and that if you trust him, and that if you are trying to be godly and trying to make a wise decision based on scripture and prayer, that you're probably in the right place. You're probably going down the right path. So don't overthink it. Trust that the Holy Spirit living inside of you is helping guide you in your life. And the reason why Paul uses language like slavery and bringing your body under strict control is because godliness is worth putting every ounce of yourself into. It's worth submitting. It's worth sacrificing. And precisely because you don't have to earn anything, you can give all of your effort to live in the life that God has called you to live. You don't have to put all your effort into making the right decision, doing the right thing, earning God's favor. You already have that. You can put all of your effort into worshiping God, thanking God with your life, loving him and loving others. I'm only speaking for myself here, but I imagine a lot of you can relate. You know, growing up, uh, becoming a Christian later in life, I constantly overthought everything. 
I never knew if my heart was in the right place. I never know if I chose the right job, chose the right school, had the right career path, was dating the right girl. I never knew if I was checking enough spiritual boxes. I didn't know if I'd sinned too many times to be forgiven. My upbringing lacked the boundaries so much that I literally just didn't know what I was doing half the time. I didn't know if what was right and what was wrong. Christianity felt to me like a stone around my neck. It felt like it was just holding me down, weighing me down, trying to ruin all the fun I was having in life. But I've learned, and I'm still trying to learn, that Christ has taken this burden off of me, that he has obeyed perfectly, that he has undone everything Adam did, that he stared down Satan and won the battle easily, that I'm not in that battle anymore. God is not trying to make your life harder or more confusing or more stressful. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace for a reason. Instead, what God has done is he has set you free to be truly human, to live a life that is joyfully submitted to God. It's not going to be perfect all the time. You're never going to be as joyful as you want to. That doesn't mean that you're not called to do the right thing, to do the godly thing. We still live in a fallen and sinful world. We still fight temptation. And so it's never going to be easy. But patience and endurance and long-suffering is worth the fight. So the question is, where are you today? Are you trying to earn your salvation with good deeds? Are you trying to impress God with the things that you do? Or are you on the other side? And are you, like I was many times in my early Christian life, hey, I'm forgiven, Christian freedom, I can do whatever I want. You, you become so into Christian freedom and freedom in Christ that you become apathetic and you think that you don't actually have to do anything anymore. The Christ has already done it for you, you're good to go. You'll be forgiven for everything. On the one hand, it's true that you'll be forgiven for everything. On the other hand, you are disobeying God directly when you're not putting effort into sacrificing and discipline and living a life that God has called you to live. So don't try to earn your salvation, but try to be disciplined. Try to put effort. Try to be sacrificial. Try to do hard things. Taking up your cross every day means really hard things in your life every day. It means that doing the right thing is hardly ever easy, but it's always worth it. We can look at Christ. If, we're, if, the, if the example is taking up our cross, what did Christ do? He was in the garden praying and he said, God, I don't want to do this, but your will, not my will. It is not sinful for you to question. It's not sinful for you to doubt because even Jesus, a true full human, had the same temptations and fears that we have when he looked at that cross and said, God, I don't want to do this. Give me another way. But Hebrews 12 also says that he did it with joy. And that's the tension that we're always living in. That tension between the joyful following God and the tension between it is really hard to do the right thing. But if we're taking up our cross, Jesus on the cross, bled, died, suffocated in his own blood on the cross, that was not easy. And so our lives taking up our cross is going to be hard too. But we have the Holy Spirit and we have Christ's obedience already applied to us so that we have the power and the freedom to do the right thing. And we all need the gospel every day. None of us are exempt from it. So hopefully we can walk out of here this morning with the encouragement that we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have God, in the, we have God living inside of us. That Christ has already done everything for us, already obeyed perfectly. And now we can joyfully live our lives for him. Fight for joy in our lives every day. So before we go uh, to the Lord's Supper together, I want to read uh, Philippians 2. I think this passage is a really good recap of everything that we've talked about this morning. Philippians 2, verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, said, I'm not going to exploit my godness. I'm going to become a man. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, 
taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.